Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Two-tone ska wasn't huge in the U.S. in the 80s. It did develop a cult audience, and bands formed in nearly every major U.S. city, which helped the U.S. grow a vibrant ska scene over time. Many of these bands developed huge underground followings. In the Bay Area, that band was the Uptones. They formed in 1981, and while still teenagers, they packed clubs, got their songs on the radio, and inspired a couple of young kids that would go on to form Operation Ivy and later Rancid. Today we tell the Uptone story with two of its members, guitarist Eric Din and keyboardist Paul Jackson. We also talk about both of their collaborations with Rancid in the 90s. So sit back and listen to some important ska history. You ever see the Uptones before? I don't think so. I have. I was at the reunion show. Damn. Yeah. I didn't know who they were at the time. And also, it was at a time when ska was at kind of a low. Yeah. Interesting timing for them to decide to to make a resurgence. They were so huge. What was the show like? Was it packed? It was, but it was weird energy because it was at iMusicast, which uh, was very uh, a young audience. And then, so there were already young people there because it was just iMusicast. And then there were all these older people who were there because they were excited that the the Uptones were doing their first reunion show. But the good thing was, is it was ska. So uh, everybody had a good time. So before we talk about the Uptones, I want to talk a little bit about Rancid. Because not only was was the Uptones an influence on Rancid and and before them Operation Ivy, but you both have worked with them on uh, songs I think people know. So, Paul, I want to start with you because you played keyboards on possibly their best-known song and one of the best-known ska songs of the 90s. Yeah. That's uh, Time Bomb. Pretty wild experience. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so, okay. You knew them already because they'd, they'd been around and you, you guys had played with the, their old band, Basic Radio, right? 
Yeah, I remember that. Um, I knew Tim from, you know, backpacking in the mountains at, when we were really young. So I knew him from oh, wow. before that. Um, and then Eric had been working with him, um, uh, writing songs for the records before that, Outcome the Wolves. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it made sense for, you know, I think I might have been the first person that they, you know, got a new person to be on their recordings. I'm not sure about that, but uh, uh, it made good sense that I would play organ on their uh, record. So it was just kind of a casual thing, like, hey, Paul, come over. We're recording a record. We need an organ. Yeah, well, like I said, Eric had been working with uh, Tim on writing, and uh, we were working with an engineer that they were then working with, uh, we introduced them to um, Michael Rosen. And uh, so we had a good working relationship. And um, yeah, I, I, I can't remember the process. I think I just went directly into this recording studio. And if I remember, I just had one session and just recorded all the stuff at once. Um, and he said, okay, you're going to have a solo on this song. And uh, I think I did it. In a take, I might have might have put a new ending on that or something, but uh, I kind of remember doing an ending over the dub. Uh, but that was it, you know. And uh, I'm trying to think when the record came out, but it, it was, was a 90, thrill to 90, have it just go yeah. right straight through. I mean, in months, yeah, it was like how quickly it came out. I mean, I was watching the television on late night and hearing my solo play, you know, on. Uh, on national television it was it was it was a thrill you know it was, it was a great experience to be part of so yeah your solo is a is an important part of the song too because that's like i think the only part of the song where it like slow like does it like a half tempo so you, so it really emphasizes the that solo there's like a guitar solo before it but then it, it the, the tempo drops kind of breaks out yeah yeah so i feel like that that solo jumps at you and if you if you're listening the i think the the rhythm change kind of bring, um, brings your attention back to the song and then it like picks right back up into the you know the the verse i think at full at full tempo so a little break in there yeah yeah so i think like i bet you I bet you a lot of people know your solo by heart. I guess that's what I'm saying. <laughs> a lot of I've seen the band play without me, and they still play the solo. So uh, you know, I, usually it's on a guitar or something, unless they have a keyboard player. But yeah, um, of course I'm partial to my uh, phrasing of the the melody. But uh, you know, it's it's good it's good to to hear the the little uh, solo continue on. Now you played live with them like once or twice or like when the song came out uh, yeah then the, then the record came out and was you know going gangbusters and uh yeah i got to play with them at the fillmore uh, which was a big blowout and then we played uh i went down and played at the palladium in hollywood which was a big thrill because they were just super hot everyone wanted a piece of that band and i was like the you know hired gun Mm-hmm. And they were all kind of dressed in their, you know, natty punk. And I was like trying to be kind of, you know, I had a bright, bright, furry candle, you know, with like sparkles and stuff, you know. <laughs> so, 
Uh, and I remember, I think, I think Tim thought it was kind of crazy. I think because I was, I would, I'm more of a kind of a not. I'm not an anti showman. Like I'm, I'm a showman. I want to put on a show. So like, sure. you know, I really totally hammed it up down in Hollywood. You know, I was like, what, what, what else am I gonna do? So I think you know, I wonder what they thought of that. But uh, anyway, yeah, the Beastie Boys were there that night backstage. I was like, what the hell's going on here? Because they were look. They had they had started their. Uh, record label and i guess madonna was trying to sign rancid you know and all this kind of stuff so it, it was it was fun you know it was it was a thrill to you know really be in the hot seat for a second did you get to hang out with the bc boys at all it was just i'm trying to remember who it was it was just two of them and oh, yeah. um it was kind of interesting because they had that magazine out uh Grand Royale magazine, which I was interested in and, and I actually learned stuff from. It was a really great magazine. And my my uh my uh girlfriend's sister was good friends with a guy that was part of the publishing group there. So I, I knew I knew them through that angle too, but the magazine. Um but yeah, they were they educated me and Lee Scratch Perry through that magazine. So, you know, I was taking notice and they I said, oh, well, you know, I got, I got my, I got my band, you know, we kind of play ska music and they're like, oh, ska music. Oh, okay. Well, you know, who, what's that band, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that was kind of fun. You know, there's famous guys. Yeah. Yeah. Those beastie boys. <laughs> they're kind of ska too. You know, if, I mean, just, just to riff on that story a little bit more, um, there's a, the guy that named the beastie boys, um, I actually was in a band with that guy. There, there used to be four of them. Uh, John Barry. He oh, hmm. so if you see when they were um, inducted to the Hall of Fame, they 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 talked about John Barry and and he named the band, and they were uh, more of a kind of like a punk band. Yeah, and they would they would play at John's house up in Manhattan. But um, anyway, John was out in San Francisco, and I I was playing in this kind of like you know, really kind of raunchy rock and roll band with that guy. And then I found out later on that he was, you know, in the Beastie Boys and named the Beastie Boys. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's my little Beastie Boy uh, uh, dropping name story. But sure. Fun, fun fact about Beastie Boys also is in New York, there was a band called Urban Blight, who kind of a funk, reggae, ska sort of band, like a little bit of everything. Okay. Anything you can dance to kind of band. But ska definitely being a, uh, component i should write that down it, it got any stuff up or this this is like yeah they're, they're more of a late 70s early uh 80s band and um the, the one of the guys i think was friends with beastie boys and so they they their horn section uh played on i think it was slow ride on the first record okay so yeah there, that's the uh aside uh, your story and then this story is the Beastie Boys Scott connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would have been fun to on Grand Royal Records, but we had our deal yeah. with uh with Matthew Cockman. So Eric, um so um you co-wrote a few songs with Tim Armstrong and he also covered an uptone song. So it started with him covering Get Out of My Way, right? Yeah, that was the first I heard of Branson. Actually, they hadn't even named their band yet. Um Tim came over and uh, knocked on my door and said, um, I want to cover Get Out of My Way in my new punk rock band. And is, you know, I guess he said, is that okay? And I'm like, of course it's okay. 
<laughs> so then I invited him in and we sat down and, and I wrote out the lyrics because I still had them memorized. We hadn't done that. So, I mean, this was like in 1994, I guess. No, maybe earlier. When, I think when it was, was earlier. Yeah. When did Rancid's first album come out? I want to say it was like 93. I could be wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this, then this would have been like 92 or possibly even 91. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, and then from that, you know, we sort of reconnected because I knew those guys from the Op Ivy days and before that, from their basic radio days, um, you know, we ended up kind of sort of from that, from him covering Get Out of My Way. Um well, it, when, once it came out, I was like sort of in shock. I'm like, wow, you not only did it, but you did it at the end of this album, which totally rocks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden Rancid's coming on strong, you know. It's also like, I mean, for people who have not heard, so the Uptones' version is a straight up ska song. Rancid's version is like a, like a punk, like a heavy punk song. So it's a totally different version. Yes, they, they did a, 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 a total... Uh, punk version of it and even the drum thing at the beginning instead of playing it like the the ska single stroke roll they, they kind of do this like wild old military roll and then just crash into it it's a really cool interpretation and and i appreciated the fact that they just went somewhere completely else with it you know it surprised me i didn't know what they were going to do <laughs> <laughs> i was not there for that once he, he left with that lyric sheet i didn't think much more about it until like he, oh wait he dropped the cd by like months later he here it is <laughs> and so did you you already have a friendship with him at the point when when he came over and knocked on your door or was he just coming out of the blue oh yeah we were friends we just we hadn't seen each other in quite some time and um so i was delighted that he reached out and that sort of led to you know the, the, the and i mean i might be getting some of the chronology wrong but we sat down and started writing some tunes together and um, a few of them ended up on uh, subsequent Rancid records, just the second and, and then the third one. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, we, we had this kind of little window of time there when we um, were, were collaborating uh, pretty actively. To my knowledge, the ones that were released were 11th Hour and Out of My Mind. Is that correct? Yeah. And there's one um, out of my mind, Lent Tower, and you know, honestly, I'll have to look it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the credits there somewhere. There's one other one, and then and there was one where he actually quoted another line that wasn't from me. That was actually from Eric Rader. One of one of his lines from um, from Out to Sea. He quotes in. in one of the songs on the second album. Um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, uh, Tim has always uh, pretty much just pulled from where whatever inspires him, you know? And um, I guess we were on his radar there for a while. <laughs> Did you ever play with Rancid? Like, no. on stage with him? No, okay. I watched Paul do it. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? Oh, it was awesome. It was really fun. So did you go to the Fillmore show? Yeah, I was there. Okay. All right. Well, and you know, you have to understand this is after the Uptones run was over and we were doing 
this other band at that time, Paul and Ben and I were still playing together, but it wasn't anything like the uptones. It was like a, a more of a singer songwriter collaboration, smaller group. Um, and we were totally into it, but it, it didn't have the kind of following or anything close to what the uptones had. So, uh, you know, for me, like going out and seeing like Rancid playing the film, which is a place that the uptones had, you know, packed in our day. <laughs> it was like they were like, you know, carrying the torch and there was Paul. Right. So I was totally stoked to see that happen. And um, and of course, they played uh, 11th Hour as well. I think that was in there. It's still in their live set, I think. Sometimes. <laughs> How would you describe the process? Like, does when you when you listen to or when you call recall Eleventh Hour and Out of My Mind, does it feel like, oh, that's a fifty-fifty, you know, songwrite, or, or is that mostly your song with Tim kind of taking his, putting his stamp on it? Well, every song is different, you know. Um, some of them I do remember the process pretty clearly, and some of them I don't. Eleventh um, Hour is mostly mine. Um, I think that's fair to say, but it absolutely wouldn't have happened without Tim um, kind of, well, I mean, first of all, he asked me to do it, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then we went back and forth. They were recording at fantasy. And I think part of the reason why he, he actually named the song 11th hour, that's his title. And I think it just because it was the last thing they finished for the album. I mean, it shows up second in the running order, I think, but, they were just about done. And I think some of the people in their camp were puzzled or maybe even a little annoyed that he was uh, pushing yet another song through. And it was <laughs> me. And they're like, who's this guy? You know, <laughs> I, I think, I don't know. There might be just the way I remember it. But um, went down to Fantasy Studios, which is just in West Berkeley, not far from where we live. Um, and uh, sat down with him in one of the little lounge rooms and showed him what I was thinking. And and then once I heard his voice on it, because he sings so differently than me, I was singing it kind of like melodically, the way I sing, you know, uh, you know, hey, little sister, do you know what time it was when you finally seen all your broken dreams come crashing back? So more like a ska melody kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he turns it into Tim. Hey, little sister, do you know <laughs> what time it was? And I, once I heard him do that, I just... It blew my mind. I was like, okay. And I wrote the rest of the song based on that, you know? And so it was a really exciting moment. Um, and, and he did the, you know, all the band arranging and conducting, uh, everything beyond that came from him. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was my song. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, I saw like people on YouTube speculating like, oh, this is a song about dealing with addiction or something like that. Do you have a, a backstory about what the meaning of the lyrics refer to? It's a really interesting question. Um, I actually don't. I I, um, <laughs> I think that uh, it certainly reflects to some degree uh, what was going on in my mind at the time. Because, um, again, I mean, you know, and I can look back on this with uh, a lot of affection and humor. Um, because I've landed on my feet now, but when you've been in a band that was really popular, that almost made it really big and didn't. Mm -hmm. And then you're kind of like slogging it out and trying to figure out what the hell to do. And I didn't have a college degree and all of these things. I kind of am in that song when you finally seen all your broken dreams come crashing down your door, you know, 
Yeah. Um, um, and Tim understood that. I mean, this thing is we both had that in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his ship was rising, right? But he had been down too. Like the, you know, he even had a band called Downfall after um, Op Ivy and went through his stuff about it. So I was kind of channeling, you know, his experience and my experience and just sort of what I was seeing um, all around me. There was a lot of disillusionment and disappointment. And yet in sort of our hearts was this, uh, you know, desire to make things better. And that's where the chorus turns out, you know, um, do you know where the power lies? It starts and ends with you. You do something about it. Get on up. (laughs) You know, and, and so, I mean, there wasn't, you know, another band in the world at that time, I think, or ever that could have delivered that message the way that Rancid did. For sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that band, the band of yours that predated Rancid, the Uptones. You guys were, the whole band was incredibly young when you started this band. Like, we're talking what, like 14? I I think I was just turning 15 when we started uh, selling out, you know, big rock clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. And we didn't even like, it just, it just took flight, you know. We were just like, what's going on here? Mm, this is fun. So, yeah, it's notable. Well, I know you guys all come from different backgrounds. You're from Berkeley. Berkeley's a unique place, especially in the early 80s. Um, some of you have like a music background, right? Like Eric, I think you're one of them. Like, like you studied music since you were like a little kid. And some so you had members that were jazz trained, but not every member, right? I mean, well, that's an interesting uh, piece of the uptones puzzle is that we had. I would say about half of the band was very skilled and trained in their instruments, and it started very young. And that would be Kenny Brooks, Thomas White, myself, um, and uh, and pretty much all the horn players. But then you also had Charles Stella on guitar, Ben Eastwood on bass, and Greg Blanche on keyboards, who pretty much started playing their instruments at our first rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I might difference. be exaggerating a little bit, but that that was the kind of contrast and yet we were all committed to the same thing. We had all fallen in love with ska music and we all kind of had these common interests that overlapped about a lot of other kinds of music, but the one overlapping point that we were unanimous about was ska. So the horn section had a jazz background, the uh you know, Ben and uh charles were you know charles into the jam ben was into ramones i was into the clash we were all into a cross-section of things but then you know if you made a venn diagram right ska was right in the middle (laughs) and uh and that gave us uh some kind of like so we could all like shoot in the same direction (laughs) when did you join the band paul uh i it's interesting i um i was in the church uh that i grew up in with uh the other two horn players, I played trumpet in the band and the singer, Eric Rader. So I knew those guys since I was um, uh, just a baby, actually. So, um, and uh, I was a year younger than Kenny and Michael, but uh, I saw Michael uh, 
uh, at Berkeley High and said, oh, we're, you know, we're going to go over and see the English Beat at the uh, the cinema club, uh, which was like a, a strip joint in the daytime. And then this young guy that we would later on know uh, was booking uh, cool uh, English new wave bands. And uh, uh, we, I, don't, I guess my, my older brother turned me on to the specials um, and Selector um and devo and then i took it a step further and figured out the english beat and they were playing you know we got on the subway and i went over there when i was you know 14 years old and uh you know just totally blew my mind you know and and eric grader after that on the on the train he said we're gonna start a ska band you know so i thought i was in originally but you know someone uh, another trumpet player played for a while <clears throat> eddie ewan and then I guess he didn't want to do the show. So uh, the one of the best calls of my life was uh, Mr. Eric Dinwiddie calling me up at dinner time, saying, "You know, you got you want to play in the band." I'm like, "Yep." That was a really fun call to make because I kind of already knew that Eddie wasn't feeling it, and Eddie was absolutely a founding member and one of my best friends, and still is to this day. Um, but I could tell he wasn't really feeling this as. Like, oh, God, this is getting serious. These guys are actually going to play a show. How can I get the fuck out of here? (laughs) (laughs) He really is not the kind of extroverted showbiz guy that Paul is. And and I had been thinking ever since I ran into Paul, I think I was with Charles and we were on our scooter or something. We were just all modded out. And we saw Paul, who I knew, I guess, from, from Casadero Music Camp. I think that's the only time I'd met you before. Anyway, and you were all kitted out. You looked ready for the stage, right? You had your hat and your scarf and you were just, you know, <laughs> well, how can we find a place in the band for this guy, right? And and then Eddie quit. And since Paul played trumpet, it was like that was the easiest call I ever had to make. <laughs> I just want to comment on the fact that how young you guys were and that, Paul, you, were, you, took, um, you took public transportation to... Uh, English beat at the age of 14. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. I saw my first show when I was 16 after begging my mom for years. (laughs) And the only reason I was able to go is because my friend's older brother, who she thought was responsible, he wasn't, uh, had a car. And that was it. You know, what was the show? 16, uh, Living Color. Oh, cool. In Sacramento. Uh, No, no. uh, Adam and I both grew up in Gilroy. So, oh, right. uh, Gilroy. Okay, and so we got to see. I got to see Living Color at the the event center in San Jose. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah, King's X opened as well. Nice, good, good first show. Um, the English Beat show. This is from. They were touring their second album, and uh, and Dance Craze at the UC Theater in Berkeley. These are both like critical moments for all you guys, right? In terms of absolutely knowing this music getting a sense of this music and it and motivating you correct yes i think that's a yes <laughs> <laughs> berkeley is a ska town we've learned this through uh these books that have been coming out about ska in america berkeley yeah. is just just uh berkeley and boston are like big ska towns i i mean i the first show i went to uh was at the berkeley keystone and that was toots and the maytals you know and uh and then we would watch the 
harder they come just next block down to uc theater and um yeah remember going and seeing eric and charles and smoking weed in the theater and you know <laughs> and uh and then dance craze came along and you know we did that too and you know we'd get up and dance in the front and it was really really like you know beautiful memories for sure so dance craze is like live it's live concert footage of all the two-toed bands the fact that kids danced was like a was a feature but sometimes the dancing got out of hand didn't it well I think that the UC theater, um, there's a little bit of backstory to that, that I think really connects the UC theater ran the Rocky horror picture show at midnight every Saturday for like two decades or something. And this was still fairly early in that run, but there were a lot of teenagers at those shows and we were accustomed. We, because I, I went to those, you know, not among the hardcore. I think I went five or six times. Some of my friends went, you know, every damn time. Anyway, we're dancing up on that stage, and it was sort of allowed by the management at those shows, right? But you really weren't supposed to do that, and it, it kind of looked the other way, and it was midnight, whatever, right? <laughs> and so Dance Grace comes along. Everybody already knows that there's a stage up there in front of this big, giant, I mean, it's an old movie theater. <laughs> it's a concert venue now, but at the time. And, and so we knew what was up there. And you put Madness and the Specials and the Selector and the English Beat and Bad Manners and the body snatchers. Did I just list them all? Um, I think so. Yeah. And it, you know, and they're like choice moments at the peak of those bands. Right. And if you are not dancing, you're, you're probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was all recorded like in between their first and second records. So that's like probably the optimal time to have seen those bands. They, they were burning so hot on those and of course you know it's nicely edited and beautifully filmed and um and so yeah i i i watched some of it from the the audience and and also got up on the stage until they kind of made a futile effort to chase us away um that sort of thing um and i wanted so badly to see those bands live in their original form and you know really never had that opportunity because that run was already over by 1981 those bands original form and the only group that i saw with the original lineup was the english beat and that was the i think we talked about this paul was there eric Rader was there yeah almost the entire what was just about to be the uptones was at this little place it wasn't that little it was, it was a, a a former porn theater in uh in uh, <laughs> the mar on market street um, that they made into a concert venue for a short time. And uh, the English beat, you know, with Saxa and Everett Morton, the entire original lineup. Um, and it was on the Wappen tour. So it was before their big hit. It was before Save It For Later. Um, and and they were still playing, you know, all, I mean, you know, Stand Down Margaret and, and ranking full stop. And I have never in my life seen a show like that before or since it was it was i i, I peaked early that <laughs> <laughs> was the greatest concert i've ever seen <laughs> english beat lasted a little longer um than the other bands with the exception of madness but madness moved into a different right. direction pretty quick so yeah. english beat stayed more into this realm a little longer than the other bands so for a while I and mean, then of course you know they um once they became more successful and had a couple pop hits then the group blew apart and you know, 
Dave and Roger tried to do this uh, general public. Hey, I think did it for a while. It didn't last. And it's kind of ironic because the other guys, the rhythm section, went and found another singer. And, you know, whether they intended to or not, they were the ones that got the really big hit. <laughs> Fine Young Cannibals, you know. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the band, but the singer came from like a lesser known ska band from uh, the UK. Roland Gift. Yeah, but I can't remember the name of the band. It starts with an oh. A. But he came from a ska band too. Oh, that he was in? Oh, I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know to look that up, but yeah, I don't know. So your first rehearsal was at your Eric, your living room, right? Yeah. How old would you say the band members were at your first rehearsal? I was either fifteen or sixteen, um, and uh, Paul's younger than me, and everyone else was around my age. Or I guess Ben was our elder statesman at seventeen or eighteen, <laughs> <laughs> and and. Uh, uh, yeah, my parents were um, living apart at the time, and uh, they, uh, uh, my my mom was more than happy to let us pull up the furniture and carpet and just basically set up in, in the living room, all nine of us, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, on a Sunday, and somehow miraculously, the neighbors didn't like shut this down because we had, you know, our amps up and. We didn't even have a PA at first. We had a, Eric Grader was singing his vocals through one of my guitar amps. Um, so it was probably all distorted. <laughs> yeah, I think many bands have done that. But, you know, I'll tell you, there was a magical moment when it started. And, you know, we had not named the band yet. It was just, let's do a ska band. That that was as far as we had gotten. <laughs> and uh, like I said, Ben was just learning to play. And when you're doing reggae being a fairly rudimentary bass player can be a huge advantage and some of the fancier choppier teenage bass players that i knew could never have done what he did right <laughs> they would have been like bored and anxious and trying to you know show off or whatever he's just really focused on doo -doo 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 you know what i mean and so then tommy on the drums who actually had all this sophistication and chops and you know, experience playing jazz and was like, just took to ska, like, just like a complete natural. He just like, oh, oh, that's how you do it. Okay, boom, right? And so the very first thing that we played together with me just playing like this little reggae pattern and then playing this bass line, and then the horns just kind of coming in with stuff, it sounded like the uptones, like right away. And of course, I, you know, like I said, we hadn't even named the band yet, but but there was a sound there. And I think we all just kind of, I, I I don't mean, Paul, you might, oh, no, I'm sorry. You, that's right. You came in after this. But um, but I was sort of shocked and, and, and me being the ambitious character that I am, the minute I heard that, I was like, well, we'll have to get a name and book some shows and <laughs> fucking go with this, you know? <laughs> now, was this your first band or did, did had you done other bands before? No, I had been trying to do this since I was like learning to walk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then, you know, that's when there was a group that actually had the kind of energy that, you know, I could sort of see right away was going to do something. <laughs> yeah. And were there any names you, you thought of before the uptones you, before you landed there? The name we had, a, we had a name talk and Paul was there for that. That, was right no you must have been. that happened before me 
<laughs> okay, well, I'm not trying to bust you, man. <laughs> oh, I guess okay. So we were already the uptown, but we hadn't. But 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 we hadn't played a show. We never played a show without. Paul. That's right. I brought the fire, mm-hmm. man. <laughs> I, he did. He did. That's the truth of it. I had my little band, which was uh, a jazz band, and I was because me and Eric uh, met up at uh, music camp, uh, Berkeley music camp, Casadero. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get that guy in my band. So I, we had already t- discussed it, you know, the summer before. So we we were on each other's radar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Y- your, your first show was at uh, your trombone player's house, right? That's right. Like, was it a birthday party or just a party? It was a, it was a warm-up. Just we just had our family over, basically family and friends, and uh, we yeah. were just kind of doing a practice run because we had this. Uh, uh, I think it was Eddie's friend that was, or Eddie was part of the um, the this little student newspaper um, called the Rind, and they were doing a benefit for the Rind at this cultural center on Shattuck, and. Um, I, I mean, that's a good story. I mean, I didn't expect it was just going to be kind of like, you know, maybe some couple of friends show up if we're lucky, but uh, the place was just totally packed and, you know, there people weren't allowed in, you know. So it we we just hit the ground running, you know. It's just, it just crazy. I mean, and the energy was just so intense because it wasn't just us. It was just, It was the whole thing. Everyone was so excited about having young people up on stage, I think, and and it wasn't, um, it was, you know, it was, it was a new kind of music, really. I mean, we call it ska, but it was just kind of like, we're just going to go for it, you know, and people really responded to that. So everyone was kind of part of it, you know. Do you know where they all heard about it? Was it just from around school? I, I mean, back in those days, people would have house parties, you know, so it was always kind of like, well, you know, what's going to happen, you know, Friday, Saturday night, you know, oh, well, you know, this, this guy's parents are out of town or something like that, you know, and this just became the thing that everyone wanted to do. And, uh, I'm sure the rind had some t- speaking and knowing Eric Rader, he probably pushed the, the word around Eric Dinwiddie. Uh, I, we made some posters, you know, but I think really what, what drove it was just high school basically. Yeah. Didn't you play an early show at the high school? that's true yeah yeah ben uh, organized that if i remember correctly where did you play at the high school so there's this huge theater which if you ever look at old rock posters it's called the berkeley community theater and everyone from you know Jimi hendrix to the grateful dead or you know all the big shows bill graham productions were at this i don't know how many it's thousands of people it's a huge theater and that's where we would have lunch we would sit in front of that place um, and have oh. lunch and our, that was our courtyard and so we put we set up in front of that that place and um had some little bunk uh pa i'm sure but uh there's actually one of uh, our friends was rolled some uh some uh, f- uh film footage there's no sound on it but there if you look around um it's up on youtube i think or venmo Vimo or something like that um yeah, there's there's footage of this show. It's pretty wild, and people just at the end, just like just freaking out, you know, just skanking and all this kind of stuff. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it's it's nineteen. What what's the year? Nineteen eighty two. You know, it's a long time ago. We all looked like we were from the seventies. I mean, it's like 
It's a very different time. I, I want to stress that, like, you know, there were not CDs, you know, there were no cell phones, you know, no internet. We would go up to Telegraph and buy LPs. That's what was our whole kind of culture, you know? Well, and the 70s didn't end at Berkeley High until at least 1989. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was word of mouth. And I think that that worked. The chronology is we played in Mike's backyard. Then we played on the steps of the community theater, the one that Ben organized. And that that was kind of the... Oh, that was your second show. Okay. Yeah, that I think was the the thing that, that sort of kicked the word of mouth into gear was that, you know, I think it was the last day of school. And as the, the bell rings and the classes are letting out and people are all coming out onto the courtyard, we start playing, right? And this was not in itself unprecedented. Other bands had done this. We had seen other bands do this, and we asked and got permission and set up and did it. But in this particular case, it just kind of caught fire because by the end of that, um, I, I, I was kind of, I couldn't believe what I was watching. There's people like dancing all the way up the stairs on the other side of the courtyard and actually on the roof of the next building, you know. Oh, um, wow. So, I mean, it was like, oh, well, this, this is working. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was very exciting. <laughs> yes, it was very exciting. Hard, hard to pass up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, m- most of those kids probably didn't know what it was you guys were doing, but it's the sound of ska is definitely, it's inviting. And I think, if you want to dance and if you're that age, you probably do. It's perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how ska has evolved. I mean, it, it, it's, it means so many different things to different people. I think it's as, as much of a general term now as rock and roll or jazz. Totally. Yeah. I think that's kind of one of the beautiful things about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost become to mean, uh, do it yourself. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, with rock, with rock and roll in a way, like a lot of the subgenres are different genres. Like, I mean, punk and metal are essentially subgenres of rock and roll. So I think ska is similar. The ska core, or the traditional ska, there's subgenres of ska. Well, I always like to point out, you know, if you're if you want to talk about roots music, you know, the the baby boomers are going to say, oh, it's you know, blues into rock and roll. But I would argue, like, ska has got a place at the table because you know, rap kind of comes out of that, you know, if you really want to pull it out. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, and I, I've been listening to, uh, I always go back to Sky, you know, but I, I've been listening to the Prince Buster stuff and what just incredible recordings. I mean, that's, that's what Sky is to me. And I don't think we ever pulled off that sound. Um, we might've tried, but, and had our own kind of sound, but uh you know, some of those beats are just straight kind of roots, old, like, like just straight rock and roll. Like just, it, it's just like a slightly different take on it, but, uh, it's not that different really. Yeah. Well, they were so influenced by American music too. So, I mean, it's yeah. kind of like, there's like a circle in a way of influence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think what you sort of touched on there, Paul, about what we may have tried to do and ended up sounding like something else. I think that's what musicians do. I mean, unless you're really trying to make a carbon copy of something, which 
in my opinion, is kind of a boring thing to do. Um, you know, you, you learn something and then you play it and then whatever it is that's in your hands and in your background and in your culture and, you know, uh, what you had for breakfast, you know, it comes out differently than the thing that you're emulating. And that can be the thing that you're then bringing to it um, and moving music forward. And then other people will hear that. And then, you know what I mean? Like a circle, like you said, Aaron. Yeah, it's, it's it's more exciting to me when it does that and moves around and changes than I mean, you know, I mean, of course, I love a good tribute band or, or traditional approach. Sometimes that that's totally valid. But I'm far more interested in hearing when people reach for something that they love and they're they're, you know, kind of striving for it. And then something happens that sort of organically couldn't come from anybody but them, you know? Yeah. I think that's, a, that's the beautiful thing in music. I agree. Yeah, I want to uh, just kind of stress that, well, we were young, but it was, it was this, it was a long time ago too. So it, I, I need to kind of almost get my own head space. Correct. To like, sure. that's what, what it was like back then. And, you know, I, I was thinking um, that, uh, one thing that was just so different was um, it just in regards to music was, you know, the, the recorded music wasn't digital. You'd have these, you know, you'd have LPs is what, and then we had tapes and stuff like that. But so uh, the uptones, you know, we, we made a little money at these gigs and um, I got to give Eric Dinwiddie some cred here. He, he, um, you know, found the place to go record a song. And, and so we, we got all our equipment in this, in the car and we went over to this little studio in San Francisco and recorded get out of my way first. And then we recorded out to sea, uh, maybe a month later. And both of those songs, Eric took to the Calex and KUSF. And later on there was the quake, uh, which was like the first kind of new wave, uh, commercial station and they all just played them you know just it, it worked it was just like <laughs> but we didn't have a record out you know and what's so interesting about it, just to kind of take that all the way down the line is like bands now you put your stuff on spotify or whatever it's like permanently archived you know but that stuff never got released on cd uh you know didn't get the second pressing or whatever um, some of it was never even released, actually. So I'm I'm doing a little bit of a advert for a recent project me and Eric did, where we actually tracked down all those tapes from whatever sources we could find. Um, sadly, we we're not the greatest archivists, but we're able <laughs> to, you know, get good versions uh, on vinyl or tapes or cassettes from studios. And uh, we recently were able to put out all that stuff remastered and um, and kind of repackage it with the with the the twelve inch EP that Four One Five Records put out, which never got the kind of re release either. Um, so and uh, now you can find that on Spotify or whatever service you're listening to. You can even find it on CD, which is really quite amusing. I, I mean, I. I don't even know. I mean, hard product is kind of almost not a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, sure. But yeah, we, uh, it was a uh, liberation hall, um, made a re-release of, uh, all of the four fifteen um, 
records stuff. And uh, that's what Bill Cop's book is about. It's funny, that came out and Bill's book came out and Aaron, your book came out and, and Mark Wasserman's book all came out like within the last few years. So it's been kind of fun to uh, see, you know, not just the Uptone story, but a lot of the other bands that we're associated with either directly or indirectly, you know, um, kind of having their stories uh, retold and, and looked at um, so many years later. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's been very fun. I was a little nervous about it at first when you, when you called and said you were writing a book because you even had the title, I think in defense of ska. And I was like, <laughs> why (laughs) like you know years later because i i didn't think it needed defending and i didn't know what your angle was i read your book i totally get it and i'm really really glad you wrote that (laughs) because you came you came into it 10 years later yeah i know you were one of the you were an early person i interviewed oh wow dude i didn't know that there was this hate I didn't know all that backlash stuff. I kind of got it a little bit, but it was just some noise on the web. I kind of didn't pay any attention to But You know, uh, then I kind of like, you know, got a little bit more an understanding of it for meeting your book. And then I Googled around and saw some of the other kind of source material, shall we say, you know, I was like, what? (laughs) You know what? Step off, man. (laughs) If you you can enjoy Sky, you, what did I, I mean, it's, it's, you might be dead. <laughs> you might be dead. I want to, so I want to, Paul, you kind of summarized a lot of the story, but I want to kind of uh, pick apart some of it. Um, Get Out of My Way and Out to Sea were two of the earliest songs the band wrote, period, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, well, yeah, I guess Out to Sea came a little later, but not that much later. Yeah, would have been very soon, yeah. So get out of my way was also like a, I'm sure it was a fan favorite right off the bat as well, right? Seems to get the kids up and going for sure. Well, I think we wrote it. I, I, Eric Rader and I um, sat down and wanted to have a uh, an opening number, something that would open our set. By this time, we were already you know, um, maybe a year into playing shows. Um, mm. Not okay. much more. Not much more than that. Um, and, uh, and I remember we were going to a party, as Paul said earlier, there would be house parties and it it was word of mouth. There's, there's no internet. There's, you know, we didn't even have Friendster yet. It was (laughs) (laughs) pre Friendster. (laughs) We we had telephones and with, you know, word of mouth and there would be, Hey, there's a party at, you know, Joanne's house. And Oh, here. Okay. We go. And so I was walking down to this party with some of the uptones and we had a show at the Berkeley square, like coming up that weekend. And I was irritated because I didn't feel we had like a really blowout opening number. So my inspiration for get out of my way for that original horn line, the was just to, you know, wake the house up at the beginning of the set. And, and then I ran that by Eric Rader and he comes with, you know, I don't want to hurt you or cause any trouble, but get out of my way. And it was on. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, this was the first song you recorded. I'm assuming that was because, you know, it it went, it went over well. Yeah. We knew that was the thing to record when we had the budget for one song. 
one <laughs> song. I love that. Yeah. So Paul kind of told the story, but let's, let's slow it down a little bit. You finish recording the song, get it mixed, and then you take it, you immediately go to the radio station, right? We drove across the Bay Bridge. We recorded in San Francisco, went back to Berkeley. Cliff Citronio, who was our sound guy at our live shows and a good friend of the band, uh, was like an intern at Calix. Um, he was our age, you know. So he knew who to like just walk in and uh, he said, we're going to have them cart it up. I'm like, cart it up? What's cart? <laughs> so they had these little tape carts that they would, you know, they walked on in and had them cart it up and that night they played it on the radio and about two weeks later it was like halfway up their chart and then a month later it was actually the top of their chart and the thing was we by this time we're thinking oh cool we'll get signed this is how bands get record deals right and it just never happened there was uh no way that we could interface with the the record businesses and the the, the existing structures of oh you know rock and roll showbiz management i mean we it's not that we didn't try we had all sorts of interesting connections met a lot of interesting people but um but there wasn't anybody who really understood the animal that we were and by the time we were actually you know getting those kinds of connections and and um you know maybe had a, a a chance at doing a run like that. The initial spark of the initial lineup of the band um, was already over. Mm. At least that's my take on it. I don't know if everybody in the band would, would see it the same way. It's not that it's not that it didn't, you know, yield a lot of interesting results after that. In some ways we were lucky that we stayed independent because it allowed us to continue to explore freely, which is just kind of, in our nature to do. Um, and, you know, forgive me for rambling, but I think that's one of the reasons why the industry was not too keen on us because we basically were going to do whatever the hell we wanted. And in showbiz, I think there's, you know, there's some spaces for that, but usually you're expected to kind of like find your lane and stay in it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Find your audience, create a brand. Right, right, and and given the the absolutely explosive, uh, uh, you know, creative temperament of nine young guys from Berkeley, I mean, it was like we couldn't stay on the page for a day. <laughs> and and in retrospect, I'm glad there was times in my life when I've been frustrated, and I wish that that were different. But now, looking back on it, I'm kind of glad that that's the way that we were and i also accept that we couldn't have been any other way out to sea i think uh, so that was the second song um that you recorded and got on the radio i think that might be my favorite song of you guys uh from the from the uptones early era um it's got some interest yeah um anti it's an anti-war song can you, t- can you talk about that a little bit yeah sure absolutely you know we had um we were all still students at Berkeley High, and Ronald Reagan was president, and they had just recently started up compulsory registration uh, for the draft. Not not a draft like they had during Vietnam that, you know, people burning their draft cards and all of that. 
the thing that ultimately lowered the voting age to 18, I think, was because it was so unfair to be able to draft someone to fight for their country and they couldn't vote yet. Anyway, here we are in the early, early 80s. And um, and there was a certain political social detail to that. And that is that if you were going to apply for public assistance for, um, uh, you know, higher education, and I forget the exact term for it, but uh, you had to show proof that you had registered for the draft or you couldn't get approved, you know, for like a certain type of student loan. And for Still whatever true. reason, this really pissed this really pissed Eric Rader off, <laughs> <laughs> and and I was right there with him. Uh, I wish he was here to talk about it right now. I I don't. He might offer some details. I don't. All I know is that he was definitely going to college, and um, and this mattered to him really personally. So apart from the fact that we were just anti-war in general, um, that gave it an additional class element. Um, and, um, and that kind of was, was the, the, the starting point for the lyrics, but at the same time, Paul Jackson and I were fooling around with writing music and, you know, so Paul and I have this, uh, this groove thing going on. Yeah. I think that was yours. And then I kind of made made the turnaround well, yeah well, then we, we had a, we had a really great brainstorming session on that i remember because you had just bought your dx7 and my little four track yeah and we started to fool around with that and it was like in this kind of mid-tempo style and i remember thinking that it kind of felt like i was thinking madness you know it felt like that it felt kind of goofy well it ended up not being a goofy song i mean it it bouncy all right but like lyrically kind of heavy you know and so we had that going on while while Eric was, you know, working on I worked with the with Eric on the lyrics and with Paul on the music. I was sort of like the midwife of that song, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, come on, let's all right, let's bring it, you know. <laughs> and then we came up with uh just doing the the intro and the outro. Um and Kenny Brooks would have really been instrumental in making that yeah. sound like a kind of a punky New Orleans and uh what's just a right. just a you know free just free free music and and people went crazy at the when we when we played that people went crazy and then it, at the end of that we usually close with that song and we would just keep pumping it out and we were just just blowing horns and just it was totally totally uh just free it was just totally free everyone went crazy it was such a great closer my sort of ideal uptone set starts with get out of my way and ends without to see is when those horns are doing that whole thing at the end. I mean, that's, you know, the the horn section at the end of Out to Sea is, is, is frankly, one of my favorite things the uptones ever did. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I agree with you on this one, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I really like that one. I want to talk a little bit about how um, energetic your early shows were. And, um, you know, a lot of people came. I'm going to read a quote from Jesse Michaels that was in my book about uptones. He said, I saw them play at Keystone Berkeley in 82 or 83, and they won me over because their show was basically a punk show, including stage diving and confrontational, though light-spirited lyrics. Really? I've never heard this quote. Tell me about that. What do you, what do you think of that assessment of Uptones circa 82, 83? 
Well, I remember Jesse stage diving. (laughs) (laughs) We used to do this. I can't remember what song it was. I think it was Jump Up. We had this song called Jump Up, which was kind of a, it was in six, four, I think. It was almost like a, it's like a James Brown kind of thing almost. And, but then we just broke it down to the drums and everyone on the stage, except drums and bass, left the stage and people responded so well to that you know we would yeah i don't think we were like diving into the crowd like you see some of these crazy shows we we would we would jump into the audience and start dancing around it and that was yeah that was a that was a lot of fun for all of us well i think in a way the at the punk rock shows at the time the pit was far more intense um and we didn't really foster that or or want that, but it was like I mean I think I think part of the reason we jumped off the stage is because we had been to see Quadrophenia. <laughs> <laughs> you know when he jumps off the balcony, I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Anyway, um, uh, it was just kind of like this all in energy, but it was also about dancing. Oh, and the thing is. As Paul says, we would jump into the audience and dance around with the people. But they would also then jump up onto the stage. Sure. And a lot of times by the end of our shows, there would be like as many audience members on stage as band members or sometimes more. Um, And, uh, you know, and we would do the whole thing where if the security was getting pissed and wanting to push people off, we sort of push the security guys back. And of course, you know, People love that. <laughs> it was fun and exciting. We we basically did what we wanted bands to do, and what we everything that we saw bands do that we liked, and we just did that for a while. I just want to talk a little bit about. Um, we've been kind of talking about eighty two, eighty three, eighty four. Maybe was your peak in terms of uh, draw? Would you say where you guys were really starting to get to open for bands and you also like um madness oingo boingo english beat gogos billy idol maybe like 84 85 right and then yeah that that kind of kept going all the way to about 87 but you also had bands like fishbone and untouchables red hot chili peppers come up and open for you right well you know what i would say about that is that the the whole live music scene in the bay area was was quite different then um a big part of it was it was audiences that drove it i mean you know we did what we did and um but people responded to it and and uh and just came out in such numbers that um you know we were sort of delighted and astonished by it honestly um and uh it, I, yeah i mean it, the scene was it was the live music scene there were so many different uh clubs to play and of course for us part of the deal was our audience was mostly underage so we were pretty adamant about only playing all ages shows and uh and that was tricky because not all of the clubs would let us do that <laughs> you know <laughs> i've heard your shows described this era as like sold out lines around the block you know people being turned away that kind of thing yeah that was happening like a lot for i for the 
you know, the first like five years of the band, basically, you know. There were some shows where people didn't show up too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um I mean so we did that we did the on the steps at Berkeley High and then we did um next show was that that uh, La Pena show which was a blowout. And then I think we I think the next one was um this place called Barrington Hall where we played with uh millions of dead cops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and that was like just I don't know a couple people there not too many people if I remember. But then we played the Berkeley Square and that um was a all ages show and a cheap ticket price and no one could like get in there it was just totally packed and the, the what's funny about the story of that is the uh, fire marshal showed up and uh you know the the show was in question there for a second um cuz you know they were considering evacuating the building but they figured out how to keep the show going on and that was that was one of those you know famous seminal shows but we you know we played um Keystone up the street and then we played uh the other Keystones one was in Palo Alto and one was in San Francisco and um and and then we were playing uh, Wolfgang's quite a bit too um and the second time you played Berkeley Square, uh, you were opening for REM on their first tour. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and and nobody, everyone showed up for you guys, and everyone left for them. Uh, yeah, that is the the, the terrible truth of it. Um, <laughs> nobody knew who they were yet, but of course we were utterly fascinated because we met them during soundcheck, and they were the sweetest gentlemen. Um, and we loved their soundcheck, and uh, you know. We were all nerding out with them about guitars because Peter Buck's into Rickenbackers and we had Rickenbackers. And so, you know, we became like kind of instant friends. And then after our show, our set was done, the house just kind of cleared out. And we got to watch REM, uh, you know, right. I mean, they had just released Chronic Town and um, and it was just us and our close friends in, in the Berkeley Square. And they 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 brought it. I mean, it was such a great set. And um, and then of course, you know, the, the next time they came back, they played the Keystone and they packed the place. And uh, you know, they were off and running. <laughs> <laughs> so Fishbone, you guys played with Fishbone a lot. Um, they came to your rehearsal once and just kind of sat and listened to you. That's that's the truth. Yeah, um, we hung out with them socially a number of times back then, and. That was just awesome because I mean, we 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 were mutual fans, and I mean, I, how could we not be? I mean, I just love those guys, and um, yeah, it, I don't know exactly how that came about, but they were they ended up at our rehearsal studio over on Ashby Avenue, um, in South Berkeley. By that time, we had our own rehearsal studio. I mean, uh, in the early you know couple of years, we were just like rehearsing at our various parents' house for as long as they would put up with that. <laughs> and then, um, you know, once we were kind of a bit more uh, established, for lack of a better word, we we had our own place that we rented. And, um, yeah, Fishbone came by there. We shared it with tr- that space with Translator for a little while. Um, a lot of different bands came through, and it just became sort of a, a, a place to hang and and it sometimes our our rehearsals sort of turned into uh uh little uh 
soirees, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> what was um favorite show in terms of like one of, one of these bigger names that you opened for in the mid 80s? We were able to uh, play a show with UB40 down in um, L.A. at the uh, Greek Theater. And I somehow I thought a lot of things came together at that time. Um, that was and it was a huge audience and they had their big hit with Red Red Wine. And we were hoping to do more work with them. And we ended up working with their uh, engineer um, in the studio later on. And uh, I don't know, somehow that one resonates with me. And also opening, um, I think we really did well opening for Madness that night. Somehow everything kind of sang well. I'll just chime in and say that Madness show was one one of my fondest memories, honestly, because they they didn't really announce us before we were, you know, on the bill. because Madness had already sold it out. They didn't really need help, but we already were on the radio and totally in the scene that was, you know, connected with Madness. And um, I think there were some rumors about that we were on the bill, but they didn't announce us. It was kind of a surprise. And so the curtain went up and we started to get out of my way and the place just went to pieces. (laughs) It was so fun. (laughs) So, um, you uh you KUSA is your first actual released album it's uh in uh, like 85 on 415 but um right after that you, you mentioned a, a UB40's producer Ray Pablo Falconer I think is that yeah, his name yeah. uh-huh. Ray Pablo Falconer yeah. Falconer um, came out, I think it's Falconer anyway he came out and uh spent a couple weeks with us in the studio in Berkeley and we were making an album with him, and uh, it it never uh, got finished. There were some things uh, at the end of that that uh, um, it, it was kind of the beginning of the end of that whole part of the band. And our lead singer, Eric Rader, uh, quit shortly thereafter. So this would have been your debut full length, had this come together. Yeah. Right. We were trying to make a full length album. and. Um, it was more like the, um, repertoire of, uh, our original concepts, uh, and whereas KUSA was, um, you know, sort of after that initial period and we were on to other things, our, our debut record is not really our debut record. I mean, I like KUSA, but it doesn't really represent what the original band was. And then we tried to make that record with Ray and recorded a bunch of stuff and never finished it. That's, mm. that's what happened. That's how I remember. Did you, so did you feel after you re- released KUSA, Oh, Hey, we kind of forgot to basically record a proper debut. So let's do that. I, you know, I think at the time we were moving fast and not looking back. And, um, I think for me personally, I kind of had that in the back of my mind, but there was just no way to stop the train. It was Ray's concept. I mean, Ray's Ray's concept. Yeah. Ray was like, let's, 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 he had us play everything the best we could. And and he's like, right, let's play those old ones. You know, let's, let's get back with that old stuff. And, um, I think he was thrilled 
because you know they were probably a funky ska band at some point too and then they you know got slick and pop or whatever i mean i'm just kind of hypothesizing here but i think he liked the energy that came from our old stuff you know so he tried to make a go of that that's an interesting point because ub40 when they started were um you know heavy dub and much more political and had this kind of rich you know echo soap british dub sound you know and then they had that giant hit with uh red red wine and they you know off and running as a famous pop band which is right when we met them Mm-hmm. And we were huge fans of their early, and we were listening to their, you know, um, present arms and their early stuff right alongside the the ska records that we were listening to at the very beginning. So it was definitely a case of working with one of our heroes. I mean, and Ray was just wonderful. It was really fun working with him, and and uh, you know, it was kind of a a sad day when that sort of fell apart. I, I don't even remember exactly how that. Didn't he pass away? Wasn't that what happened? He died a little while after that. He, it was awful. He died in a car wreck. Mm. But that's that's not what ended it? It ended before then? No. I mean, I think by that time, our kind of run with them had sort of already stopped because, as I said, our lead singer quit the band. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so all of the recordings that we had done with Ray had Eric Rader as the lead singer. Um so and at the time to 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 mix a record that was all recorded on two inch, thirty inches per second tape at you know a hundred dollars an hour or whatever in this fancy studio, right? It it's like a, a considerable budget to then go and mix and finish and master that. Yeah, and um, it was just uh, it was not practical for us to do that, um, and. Uh, and we just didn't have the will to do it. We weren't going to mix a record with the singer that wasn't there anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. We fantasize about it, but... Uh... I still have those tapes <laughs> sitting around. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a lot it. less expensive to mix it and master it now. No, that's just it. Actually, it's funny little sidebars that I actually took one of those tracks and had it uh, transferred to digital and... Uh, to see how it all sounded. And, and uh, so, it, yeah, it's possible that we may go through the exercise of, of mixing all that stuff. I mean, of course the moment is like three decades gone, but, yeah. um, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's still there. And, and, you know, it's been kind of nice digging through our old stuff. Like Paul mentioned earlier, we went through and found all these early tapes that actually were done and compiled them into this album that, uh, came out a couple years ago, um, which does cover some of the earliest recordings, which for whatever stupid reason we didn't put out back then. <laughs> I mean, I want to speak to um, just the kind of tone of the band at that time. Um, I mean, it should be said, Eric Rader was a, a serious leader in the band and, you know, was a big reason why the band got together and um was a very serious performer and uh you know we we kind of were his band even though the band had its own kind of energy eric rader was like a superstar he you know was a very dramatic guy very literary guy a great singer and great performer i mean he was people were really attracted to him as a performer so it was a big blow for him to like just kind of 
and say no more. But, um, you know, in retrospect, we were such a, it'd be difficult for him to kind of support what was happening at that time because he, you know, he had his own very strong vision of what he wanted to do as an artist. And we were just, you know, everything was game in that group, you know? Um, so, uh, I think he kind of had to like, just kind of check out. And, um, what happened after that was me and Eric and Charles decided to sing trio style because we were listening to like Oswad and Seal Pulse and, you know, a lot of these reggae bands with a lot of background singers and stuff. And, um, there was a lot of friction with our management that that wasn't such a good idea. But uh, in the end, we went and recorded a record. I was just thinking about this, going over, making these kind of re-releasing this stuff. I mean, we put out another release a year later with the three of us singing, you know, and it got played on the radio and actually did very well. Eric's uh, Burning Sky. Yeah, that's um, the Outback EP, right? The Outback EP. Yeah, yeah. So... I mean, the the band couldn't be stopped, even with our, you know, very, very charismatic um, powerhouse lead singer. Um, we kept going, you know, and and then it had this whole new life to it, um, which was really interesting, too. We we kind of went more into playing reggae, really. And, um, you know, we've been playing with UB40, but we got to play with Oswald and um, Steel Pulse and... Uh, you know, so we got to play with not only our, all our like new wave ska heroes, we got to play with, uh, you know, some some heavy reggae bands, too. And they hold our own, you know, I mean, as best we could. Um, people seem to dig it. And uh, so, yeah, it was a whole new new um, chapter of the Uptones. Um, then we got kind of back together with our old drummer, um, invited all the old crew. Um, but um, in the end, we, the three of us sang the old material, and that's the live album, the Uptones live album at, at Gilman Street. So that was recorded in 89. Were, was that your last show, or was that like a reunion after you'd broken up? It was a reunion. So, so when did you break up then? 87. Okay, so, was it, did, so you had the Outback thing, was doing well. What, was, what happened? Well, more personal stuff. Um, Charles had to leave the band, and um, I think, for me anyway, um, it was just sort of one too many. I, <laughs> I I don't know, Paul, you might have a different take on this, but uh, at that point, it just, it, it didn't really feel like um, keeping the band together as the uptones made any sense anymore. And, um, I suppose in hindsight, I've sometimes had some regrets about that, but, but n none that really last because I think in a way doing what we did in the subsequent groups that we did, um, really it, it was, it was, it was good that we didn't keep the name during that period because it gave us the freedom to just do whatever the heck we wanted and not try and like fit it into um sort of the uptones format because we we did have some kind of format i mean but the thing is these decisions were made I, one thing about the uptones that i realized is 
we made big decisions very spontaneously <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like there were we didn't have like meetings and strategies and you know, and I it just okay, we'll do this next, you know? And um and so um and some of those decisions were great and some of them probably not so great. <laughs> we were still pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were. I mean, by the time the uptones stopped, you know, I mean eighty seven, I was what, twenty one? Yeah. So Eric, you before so a few years earlier when the band was really getting to go really getting going, you could you dropped out of high school to pursue the band and Yeah. Didn't you like waltz into uh Bill Graham Presents office and just say like, Hey, you need to start booking my band? I actually waltzed. <laughs> <laughs> He's very good at waltzing, actually. I mean, in that situation, you're gonna have to. <laughs> Eric had an act for this. He gets embarrassed when I give him props, but you know, he he marches the tapes into the radio studios. He uh, you know, goes into the booking offices and say, like, "We're we're going to be the biggest band, you know, next week. You I have to book us." Yeah. I told yeah, you Ratt, did it though. Told, you did it though. I I told Paul Rat, who was booking the On Broadway at the time, one of the punk rock venues in San Francisco. Um, cause I couldn't seem to get his attention. I said, you need to book my band because it's going to be the biggest thing in the Bay area and you don't want to miss this. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the, fun, the best part about the, these stories is that you're not even 18 when you're doing these, <laughs> these, yeah, these that's right. you're just like at an actual kid going yes. into radio stations. Yes. <laughs> and the thing is, I wasn't even sure if that was true. I just figured I'd say it. <laughs> yeah. So what happened? Um, the, Gilman show, what prompted that reunion was two shows in 89. It was two nights in August of, of 89. And by that time, uh, Charles had a band called A Mad Affair. And Paul and Ben and I had a band called Hobo. And um, we got asked to play a reunion gig at Gilman by the Gilman promoter at the time. I can't even remember his name now. It's off. <laughs> yeah that is my my reaction was i don't think it's possible but i like the idea so i kind of reached out to the band and you know i wanted to get as close to the original band as possible and uh tommy our drummer original drummer was down to do it and i think that was a key piece because um I, and this is actually a piece of the story i think that is 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 kind of key to our whole curve that he left in it was new year's eve 1984 we opened for oingo boingo at the old well no at the warfield um and uh and then tommy went to college mm. um and uh we quickly replaced him with jay lane who's a very good friend of ours fantastic drummer and he was in the band for a while and then he left and then we got jane Ma john mater another great drummer and we never quite had the same chemistry mm. with those guys. As fantastic as they are, the particular mojo that Thomas White and Ben Eastwood had on drums and bass was, um, you know, just magic. And um, and by this time, I you know had enough experience to know that so i was like okay if we're gonna do a reunion show we've got to get tommy right and then i tried to get eric Rader. he didn't want to do it 
And so that presented us with the question of who's going to sing his parts on those songs, because the idea was to sort of cherry pick our repertoire from the entire six years of the or seven or whatever of the original run. And, you know, quite a lot of that had Eric Rader on vocals. So what we ended up doing was I sang the songs that I co-wrote with him. Paul sang the songs that he co-wrote with them in, in broad strokes. Um, that's what we did. Um, so it, it was the entire band, except for the original lead singer that played the Gilman show. And, um, and that recording, you know, five years later came out, um, thanks to, um, Matthew King Kaufman of Berserkly records, who, uh, I gave him the tape, you know, just like, I just wanted him to hear it one day because we were, he was producing the hobo album at the time. And I said, Hey man, you got to hear this. Cause we found the the tape of the Gilman show and it was a good recording. And, um, and he said, I have to make a live album out of this. I was like, really? You can, you can master that up and make it. You say, hell yes, I've got to do it. You know, can I, I said, okay. You know, and that album actually is the, Closest representation, well, it was at the time, um, of the uh, of the original band that ever came out. And it's kind of a shame that Eric didn't do it uh, because I can't sing it out of my way the way that Eric Rader can. I did okay. I'm mm-hmm. I'm glad that I did it. I I I don't regret doing it. But he sang that shit so much better than me. <laughs> so you're um. Your second, you, you listen off your different drummers. Your second drummer, Jay Lane. Could you tell people what band Jay went to after you guys? Well, he, he's been in Primus, but he left us to go join the Freaky Executives. Oh, the Freaky Executives. <laughs> Famous <laughs> in the Bay Area at the time. And, and then he was in Primus. And then he's been in a lot of different uh, popular groups. He's had a long association with uh, some of the Grateful Dead offshoot groups. Well, and then, and then John Mater. You brought him up. He's one was one of your drummers. Yeah, he, yeah. We were his kind of first uh, big gig, I guess. <laughs> Aaron, do you know what John Mater's current gig is? I do not. He plays. He plays drums for Hamilton. Right. <laughs> He's, John's had a huge career. I mean, this is kind of a, He's all over the place. Yeah. An interesting footnote. Like so many of the cats that were in the uptones have just, you know, I could talk for an hour about all of the things they've done. It's it's wonderful. I mean, we were a nice little launch pad for a lot of different um, artists. I was going to bring up um, before the live show, there was the um, the Earth Day up at the Greek. I think the Earth Day was after. Actually. Was that after? Okay, you're good to know. Yeah, that was kind of, I mean, in Realms of Ska, that was, the, and this was the same guy that did the promoting. It's Yeah, it's kind of sad that we can't remember his name. Oh, this, um, yeah. Right. And so, yeah, that was, uh, who played uh, well bad manners was on it and um us and uh it was an inter- international beat yeah international beat my my uh at the time I, um what was the gangster fund out of from detroit yeah. um we ended up marrying sisters <laughs> and uh so that was kind of interesting um the saxophone player that's your brother-in-law yeah no way <laughs> well my ex-brother-in-law yeah right Chris Min- Chris Minnick Chris, Chris Minnick on saxophone yeah. yeah um 
So that that was yeah that was a big deal for I mean for Ska he really put his neck out for Ska and wanted us to play and you know uh, that that helped us our story move along very nicely. At the at the Gilman show, the Tim Armstrong introduced you guys. Yeah. So Op Ivy is going right at this point, or they? Yeah, that was. I think Op Ivy was still going strong. They had such a short run, but I think '89 they were they were. Still at it. That was my idea. I said, Tim, man, this is your house, man. You got to introduce us. And he, <laughs> and he was real reluctant. He's like, well, what, what, what do you mean? Why, like, why, what, what, who am I? You know, I'm like, dude, this is your house. You got to help us. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's him. I told, I made him do it. I'm like, get up there, man. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the right move. Those, you know, those were the, the, other, the detail that Eric didn't, um, put in there was, uh, in in his kind of mode of doing business, he said, "Well, we'll do the gig if you do it if you bring a drive up mobile recording truck." <laughs> so that's so that's exactly what happened, right? That was part of the negotiation, and I, you know, just didn't see the point of going through the. It was quite a lot of work to get everybody together and and rehearse and get it up to speed because we weren't going to do it if we weren't going to do it right, you know, and um. So uh, at that time, Hobo had a rehearsal studio that was just two blocks away from Gilman, right? So we were, it was easy to uh, get everybody together at um, our little place on 6th Street um, and, uh, and rehearse everybody. But I you know, didn't want to go through all that and not have it well recorded. Um, so they agreed and they brought in a, you know, a, a multi-track uh, mobile recording truck you know, and here's an interesting little footnote. As long as we're dropping names, the guy that really saved that recording was Dave Bryson, um, famous in the Counting Crows. Mm. Uh, he was the guy that ran a, a DAT recorder alongside the multitrack as sort of like a safety in case the multitrack didn't work out. Turns out the multitrack didn't work out, and we used Dave Bryson's DAT and mastered that that's the thing that matthew kaufman made the album out of so it was kind of like it almost didn't happen <laughs> that that album is a small miracle <laughs> so op ivy were not a band anymore by the time earth day happened because um i know tim armstrong was um actually actually he had already started dance hall crashers and quit that as well because dance hall crashers played and he wasn't in dance hall crashers and he was uh, wandering around the festival filming a, a public access segment. And yeah. Eric, you were, fil- you were interviewed for that. Do you remember? Yeah, he, he interviewed me and some other individuals that um, were there just sort of hanging backstage and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you watched it or you just remember it from? Oh, I've seen it. It's on YouTube and stuff. <laughs> I just remember there's a part where, um, you know, you, you go, uh, what do you say? Something like, you know, we get back together, we get back together, we get back together, we get back together and play Scott anytime we want. All <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, the thing is, I, and it's funny, Aaron, because many years later, all the way out to, I think, 2018, when you did a piece about the uptones in uh, the East Bay Express. And you interviewed me for that. And 
uh, at the end of that, a, you, I, I'm quoted as saying something like that. Um, every time we play might be the last time. And um, it turned out that was the last time. <laughs> but I think I already kind of had that attitude back in the late eighties. It was just, it was just, it wasn't like um, that there was, there was a uh, kind of a, a lack of, of um, organization and business structure. Um, in the uptones. And even though we tried to kind of impose some of that on ourselves and other people tried to as well, it just never took, it was anarchy. The band was, you know, all these very, very, you know, strong minded, creative people who um, had a different idea of what they wanted to do just every morning, you know? And so we had a lot of happy accidents and we had some train wrecks. <laughs> yeah, so you record the Gilman in 89, and then Berserkly Records releases it in 95. Great time. Great time to release a record for Ska. You know, here's, here's, a, here's a band, you know, here's a band that predates the Ska boom, and we're le- releasing it in the middle of this kind of increased interest in Ska. But you guys don't get back together during that time. You, you guys get back together in 2002 which is kind of after that boom has sort of receded a bit yep. and to be quite frank i didn't i wasn't aware of it. i know <laughs> neither was i we had started to just bring a few ska beats back into our you know kind of rock band and um and then i guess the feeling just felt like well maybe we want the full horn section and play some of the old songs and um charles stella was back in town so we he, that kind of kicked it into gear and yeah. uh you know we met Jeannie geiger on trombone a brilliant brilliant musician um and uh got our saxophone player back in adam beach and um i'm trying to think who was playing trumpet at that time um and it was a great run actually we did some great shows and uh uh let's see i'm trying to think when we recorded that first record um what year that was but um really i mean what's interesting is you grow through being an entertainer and you become a mature person and there is this kind of new way of looking at like okay, this is what entertainment is and you have a lot more on you. And I'm super proud of the, the uh, work we did after, you know, the, the, the new uptones, um, just a lot of great stuff and a lot of great shows um, we did. Yeah. It was a very different vibe. I think um, by that time we were grown persons and we had a little bit more, um, ability to kind of understand what it was that we had done and look at, okay, so if we're going to do this again, what are the pieces we want to keep and focus on? And what are the pieces we want to leave behind? And we did a a pretty fine job of that for um, that, that run um, and ended up making uh, the Skank and Fools Unite album also with Matthew Kaufman. 
producing and Michael Rose and engineering, those guys, they have a big role in that whole period. And, and, you know, even before, um, and, uh, then, you know, the, the whole, uh, I, I, there was, I got a little glimpse of the, what you were saying, Aaron, about the, the ska wave, you know, and how it came and went and came and went, you know, um, because there were some youngsters at our shows in the, you know, from 2002 through, um, 2008 or nine or so, um, we played this venue called I Music Cast, which has to be the worst name for a club in all. <laughs> hey, you, you know who used to work at I Music Cast? Uh-uh. Uh uh. Adam Davis. <laughs> I worked there. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. And I will also agree, worst name for a venue ever. I mean, it's a great venue, but they had to call it that. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we had some amazing shows there. Were you at some of those? I was at those shows. Yes. No kidding. Wow. What a trip. Yep. I was at your guys' first, uh, first reunion show. Oh, back that's then. wonderful. My gosh, really? Well, yeah, yeah. And that just, that became sort of our kind of home base for a, a number of shows, uh, as we kind of put the thing back together. And, uh, <laughs> I have this one hilarious memory. There was this kid in the front row. And I, some of those shows were packed. And it wasn't just because of us. We didn't have the draw that we had in the 80s, okay? But we also played with, uh, what are some of the bands? The Matches, um, uh, Maldroid, uh, the Phenomenots, you know, that period. Yeah. And, and so we did some great bills um, that we sort of had the privilege of topping those bills just because we were the, you know, old guys. <laughs> and and uh, you know, but the the crowd stuck around. It was packed, and this kid was—I don't know, Paul. You may remember this, but um, some kid was like yelling at you, in as in in, in as we were getting ready to play. And he, <laughs> this is almost embarrassing, but it was so sweet. He said, "You're saving ska." <laughs> was that you, Adam? <laughs> it was not me. <laughs> That's hilarious. I can't say I remember that, Eric. I do remember that. I, 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 there might be a bit of a you know statement there, but I mean, you know, it's, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> sure. So in uh, 2007, 2008, I think um, you guys did the Skankin' Fool Skankin' Contest shows. Yeah, those were fun. We got to give Matt some credit for that. That was his idea. That was Matt's idea. Yeah. Okay, so explain what this is. Did you do this at, where did you do this at? Just little clubs, you know. I I think we should mention um, Moose joining the band, which was a big deal. He he's a you know master rhythm guitar, lead guitar player, singer, performer, writer, um, a whole new kind of chapter for the Uptones. Um, and so the skanking contest. Yeah, the yeah. idea was that uh, I mean Matt's really old school kind of entertainment ideas, and he saw this working uh, in the past where you just have to pack on, um, uh, value to your entertainment that, you know, buy. So, um, we're going to give away 200 bucks for the best skanker. And, you know, you put on your number and they're, they're judges. And we did a number of those and I think it had some legs to it. We're talking about it tonight. Um, 
had some had some <laughs> interesting quality to it. Yeah, it was a fun idea, and I think it did bring some energy. People kind of wanted to show a little bit more. Sure. You know, it was, it was fun. You know, people loved it. I was really skeptical when Matt came up with that idea. I was like, okay, we'll try this. But in the back of my mind, going, this could just go really badly. You know, what if just people don't dig it? What if they're not, you know, I put a stupid number on my back. I came here to see the uptones, you know, but they actually got really into it. And, um, and, and, and there was a great, uh, additional twist to it. Um, <laughs> cause I mean, let's face it. It was kind of a genius idea of Matthews. There was one rule in the dance contest is that you don't stop dancing. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so. You know, normally people would dance at our shows anyway, but at that, at at the first skanking contest show that we did, it was like balls out, full on dancing for the entire set. <laughs> yeah, and people were doing flips. I mean, there's videos of this stuff. <laughs> you know, Amazing. just kind of outdoing each other, and I was in awe. I was like, "My God, okay, well, let's do that again." <laughs> so I think we did it like three or four times. How would you or the judges decide on a good form? We weren't judges. <laughs> but how did the judges I decide? I think we're privy to that. <laughs> we were the we were the music. Yeah. I know. We totally we just we just appointed judges. I don't even know who they were. Who it was Matt. Matt and a few other people. And and uh, one interesting <laughs> aspect is um, we were able to get some sponsors. So and we put a big made a big check big poster graphic and mounted it you know and at the end of the concert gave the big the big check to the winner you know it was totally totally cheesy and fun yeah <laughs> how much how much was the check for oh i think it was 200 bucks or something <laughs> <laughs> i like that the giant check probably costs as much to make as i'm in graphics so you know comes comes oh, easy okay you got it then <laughs> oh, that's right you made the giant check i remember that but then you know we actually gave them 200 cash you know that was that you know what i'm thinking about right now is the uh talking about uh you know people we play with that kind of stands out and i'm just remembering uh we we got to play down at santa cruz we used to go down to santa cruz quite a bit but you know with the new band uh we were asked to open up for the resurrected english beat which is was just dave wakeling but it was a good pretty good band um but that was a great night I don't know what year that was, but we just did so well. And there happens to be some video up actually of that show um, out on YouTube. And uh, yeah, that, that night was just, it was just on. Yeah. That was when Moose had joined the band. I mean, just a little piece of that history is that uh, Charles had to quit the band a second time because he was down in Brazil producing a record and they had a deadline and he couldn't, get up for this gig that we had at Ashkenaz and it was too late to cancel. And I was terribly conflicted, right? Cause I was like, God, I can't cancel, but I don't want to do it without a guitar player. And, you know? And so, uh, I, we all kind of had the same idea at the same time. There's one person that we knew who could come in on such short notice and kill it. And that was Musashi Moose Lethridge. And he did. And, uh, and then after that, uh, Charles was like, you know what? You guys should just keep going like that. I'm out again, and you have my blessing. Go Moose, you know? And <laughs> so we finished the Skank and Fools Unite 
album with Moose, but we started it with Charles. There's sort of Charles is on like five songs and Moose is on the rest. <laughs> that's that's what happened. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska you will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode and access to the in defense of ska discord in defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well co-host adam davis has an amazing band called omnigon give them a follow on instagram and twitter it's simply at Omnigo. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.